Good morning. Today's message is going to be preached on Revelation chapter 5. And so that's what we will read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, it is good to be back uh, with you here after a couple of weeks, uh, 10 days out in, over in Israel. Had a great time. Uh, and consider, it, consider myself very blessed now to be able to have these mental images of these towns and places that I read so often throughout the scriptures and get to preach about. Uh, so you get to... Hopefully, well, probably, sorry, whether you want it or not, you're going to indulge in some of my, you know, different analogies that come from these places around town. I did take a few pictures. I thought I'd show you. Um, <laughs> rumor has it somebody was hoping that I would come with different illustrations and food, but I'm sorry, the food was amazing. Uh, this is from uh, Nazareth, I think, and I think I have another picture. Yeah, this is from um, uh, Tiberius, I believe. Do I have another one in there? Oh, yeah, this is from um, uh, along the Dead Sea, I believe. I think there's one more. Oh, and then there's Bob and Corey. I put this picture in here because Bob and Corey travel all the way to Israel to eat a hot dog. You see that? 
just so you know. Anyway, right. yeah, I'd love to show more pictures and just take this whole time to have a slideshow, but we had to give time to Beth this morning, and so I can't do that. We'll do that some other time. Uh, we're instead going to pick up where we left off in the book of Revelation three weeks ago, if you can remember. If you're new with us this morning, we're working through this book of Revelation, which is a beast of a book. Uh, no pun intended. No, never mind. Probably shouldn't use that word. But uh, it's this wonderful book, and it is it just happens to be the most symbolic book, arguably, in, in all of the scriptures. It's a book full of vivid images, which are intended to paint pictures of the deeper realities to life behind the scenes, and are meant to capture our imagination and capture our worship and capture uh, and uh, feed our, our devotion and our endurance uh, to Christ. And so we're working our way through this, and we left off in chapter 4 uh, three weeks ago, which is this glorious scene in the throne room of heaven. And there in the throne room of heaven, you've got these circles of creatures and living elders who are gathered around the throne, and they're all shouting praise to the one who is seated on the throne, saying, holy, holy, holy. Literally meaning there is no one or no thing, there is nothing like you in all of creation, you who was and who is and who is yet to come. And worthy are you of all honor and glory and praise. Remember that three weeks ago? And so the question that we just kind of left off with is, okay, how are you doing keeping the center the center? How are you doing entering into the circles and joining the choir around the one on the throne and giving your life in worship and praise and service uh, to this God? And so this week in chapter 5, that scene continues. It's not a new scene. It's all one scene here. And what happens in chapter 5 is that Jesus moves into the center. And now the praises and the songs from all the creatures in heaven and on earth now are directed both to the one on the throne and to the Lamb, to Jesus himself. And you could say we're going to be left with the same question we were last left, left, left with last time. How is it going? Putting not only God, but also his Lamb at the center and living your life in worship of him. Okay, but before we get there and ask that question, there's two other things we're going to cover. There's a little bit of drama that comes into this chapter, and there's a little bit of a twist to that question, or not, maybe not so much a twist, but a, a little bit of a poking and a prodding to that question of, are, yes, are you submitted to this God and to this Lamb, and do you live your life out of Him at the center? It's a little bit more difficult of a question this week, but... We'll get there when we get there. First of all, let's talk about the drama. There's some drama in chapter 5. And maybe the best way to get at the drama of chapter 5 is to ask the simple question, John, why all the tears? <laughs> why the loud weeping? I think I've mentioned a couple times, I grew up in a house of all guys, had three bro- or two, two other brothers, just my poor mom in there with all of us guys. Uh, we weren't a very emotional bunch or whatever, and so now I live in a house with predominantly all women, got three teenage daughters, and George and the pure little Jeffrey down there. So sometimes, on very rare occasion, there is emotion in the house that I don't fully understand. <laughs> very rare. And so some of you maybe, uh, you know, can see John here weeping, and weeping loudly, it says, and you may be left with, John, why, why all the emotion here? Why all the tears? 
All right, and so to get at that, we got to go back and just remember one thing from chapter 4. Remember when they are saying, Worthy are you to receive all power and glory and honor, the one who's seated on the throne. Do you remember the because? Worthy are you to receive all power and glory and honor because you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. Right? It's this great song of praise to the one on the throne because he's the one, he's the great creator of all things. He's the one in this, who, in this spontaneous act of pure joy and love, created the world and then flooded it with life. Okay, but so the thing is, there's, there's work left to be done in this creation. Like this creation, from the beginning, has gotten off track a little bit. Uh, there's a brokenness to it. There are these forces that have taken root, and now are that are work in it to uh, disrupt it, dismantle it, plunge it back into chaos, to threaten to, that threaten to undo it, as the old hymn uh, puts it. Right? And so there's work left to be done here. The moment Adam and Eve don't crush the head of that snake when he comes in with his lies about God and life, but instead listen to him and align themselves with him and choose to follow him. Now this thing is broken. And now that serpent, now the enemy of God has a place and he has a foothold or a stronghold in creation. He has a place, a stronghold in their hearts and then also in the hearts of those who would come after them. So there's a brokenness to it. There's, there's work left to be done. Which leads us to this scroll that the one on the throne holds in his hand. Back in the ancient world, uh, scrolls were made out of papyrus reeds. Uh, and papyrus kind of like, it's like celery. You can peel off, you know, like little layers of it. And that's what you would do. You would peel off layers of, you know, papyrus reed. And then you would, you would lay them flat, maybe in vertically. And then you would peel off more layers and you would lay them horizontally over top. And then you would slap some vegetable glue on there or whatever and press it down together. And you would just keep doing this until I think you had something like 30 feet of this. And that would consider, that would be, be one scroll. And the reason I tell you that, stressing the, you know, the reeds would go this way and then it would go this way, is because you would never or hardly ever find scrolls that were written on the front and the back. Right? Because if you're writing on the front where the reeds are going horizontally, your pen is going to flow nice and smoothly in the, in the reeds. But if you were to turn it over and to try to write on the back where the reeds are going up and down and you're writing across that, your pen's going to be catching and tripping. Uh, every time you cross over a new read. So right, you just never had it where you would write on the front and the back unless you absolutely wanted this one scroll to contain everything that you had to say about a matter and you didn't want to have to split it up into two different scrolls. The point being, when we find out that here's a scroll that's got writing on the front and the back, we're, we're clued in that this is the sum total and we get this impression from really the rest of the book of Revelation as well too. But this scroll written on the front of the back, it is the sum total of God's intent and his purposes in redemption and judgment in his creation. It is the sum total, really, of God's plans and purposes for all of history, beginning with the resurrection of Jesus Christ all the way to the consummation when he comes back again. Okay? So it's a pretty important piece of paper here. 
And the thing about scrolls in the ancient day as well too, right after you put the paper together and you rolled it all up or you wrote whatever you're going to write in, you rolled it all up, then you would seal this thing. Maybe you would take a candle and you would pour some wax, you know, where the paper folds over. And then you would, if you were a king, you would take your, your ring with your royal insignia on it and you would press that down into the wax so that it would have your royal insignia on it. And that would act as like a seal to the paper. And that insignia meant that only somebody who had the authority or the permission of the king could open that. And the other thing about these scrolls, especially in legal documents back then, is that the scrolls weren't officially enacted until somebody broke that seal. For instance, if you know, a king maybe writes his last will and testament in a scroll, and he seals it up, puts the seals on there, sends it off for whenever he dies or whatever, Chances are he would also make copies in case anything would happen to that scroll. And those copies were not official and they may or may not have been sealed and people might read them and know what's in them. So you could know what the king's wishes were. But it wasn't until you gathered together and somebody took a knife and slit open those seals that the last will and testament officially went into effect. Right, so in other words, you know, here it is. Here's the scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne, full of his sum total of his purposes for all of creation, for all of history. Not opened yet. But so that's here comes the question. Here comes the question from the angel. Who is worthy to open these scrolls or open these seals and unroll the scroll? And there's dead silence. Angel looks in heaven, he looks on the earth, he looks under the earth. Nobody is worthy. And John weeps. And he weeps loudly. Part of the reason that he's weeping, it could be, is maybe he's realizing how far humanity has fallen. Because it was humanity that was created in the image of God. And was charged to fill his creation and to subdue it and to have dominion over it. It was humanity that was supposed to rule on God's behalf and to execute God's purposes and his intentions for his creation. But because in that broken state that we find ourselves in, we you know, pull ourselves out of that circle of praise. And we make our live self-absorbed lives with our own little orbits around ourselves and we expect all of life and all of relationships and even God himself to uh, orbit us and instead of giving all power and honor and glory to God we want the glory and we want the honor and we want the power and so as a result of that nobody's worthy to open these scrolls and so John weeps but actually, the bigger reason why he weeps is because if nobody opens those scrolls, it doesn't happen. That's the point. That's the picture here. If there's nobody worthy to come and open those scrolls, right, then this redemption of his creation, this judgment of things that are not right and removal of them from his creation, that never happens. If there's nobody worthy to open the scroll, then the vindication of his brothers and sisters, the church around the world, which is suffering hardship and persecution now for so long, if nobody can open those scrolls, that vindication never comes. Or if nobody is available to open those scrolls, then all that John has done, all of his labor, all of his toil, all of his tears, and now his own tribulation as he suffers in prison, is all for nothing because God's purposes never are going to come to fruition. 
Now do you see why he weeps? Permit me one second just to make a theological point here. Uh, a little bit of a, not a pet peeve, but just a, a nuanced point here. You know, we take great joy in the sovereignty of God, especially in times of trial and hardship. But sometimes when I hear how we talk about the sovereignty of God, it almost sounds like we would be saying, hey, John, relax. God's on the throne. God is fully sovereign. So even if, even if there isn't anybody there worthy to open the scrolls or open the seals and unroll the scroll, well, God is still sovereign. His will is going to stand. Nothing's going to thwart it. It's going to happen. Okay, and I understand that sentiment, but you just have to understand that from the perspective of the New Testament and certainly the book of Revelation, that's not quite accurate. Or, or better put, that's not the way the New Testament or the book of Revelation talks about that sovereignty. The purposes of God for sure are going to stand. And they are going to be executed. And they are going to be accomplished. But it's only because of the gospel. It's only because Christ has overcome. He has faced all the powers of sin and death. He has suffered that in his flesh. And he's been raised victorious. And he has been elevated to the right hand of the Father. In other words, here's the point. Make sure we remember that the sovereignty of God is good news precisely because of the gospel. And let's not talk about the sovereignty of God apart from the gospel, or apart from the drama of the death and resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That is what assures the execution of God's sovereign and good purposes. Okay, theological tidbit done over. There's much more to talk about that. I'm also... No, never mind. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so much to say. It's such a rich passage. But so anyway, you, 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 you sense why he weeps. So long as the seals are unbroken and the scroll is rolled up, God's good purposes don't come to fruition. And so this is why then the angel comes and says, Weep no more for the lion of Judah and the root of David has conquered Right, here's two great images that any good Jewish reader certainly would have understood. Lion of Judah, that's hearkening back to Genesis 49, all the way back to the very beginning when Jacob, as he's on his deathbed, he gathers his sons together around him, and as he's blessing them, he gets to his fourth son, Judah, and he says, Judah, you and your offspring, you're like lions. And the scepter will never depart from you and your family until tribute and obedience of all the peoples is given to you. Or that root of David, that's from Isaiah 11, where Israel is in shambles, carried off into exile. The great tree of David's kingdom has been lopped off, and it's just a stump there. But the prophet Isaiah says, but one is going to come, shoot from the root of David, and the Spirit of God will be upon him, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will judge with righteousness for the poor and equity for the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And the breath from his lips will deal with the wicked. In other words, uh, these are two powerful images that would immediately get anybody's attention. Thinking about the great messianic king that we have, the long, that we have for a long time been looking forward to. Okay, but then here comes perhaps... <laughs> the biggest twist in this whole book and the most important twist for understanding the theology and the point and the message of the whole book of Revelation. If you miss this twist, you're going to miss the point of the whole book of Revelation. 
And we're going to be harking back to this as, you know, all throughout the book. But so here's John. He hears the angel say, the Lion of Judah has conquered. And so he turns, likely expecting to see this ferocious lion growling or roaring or whatever. And instead he sees what? A little lamb. A cute little lamb. And a lamb, that's probably not so cute. He's bloodied and battered because he looks like he's been slain. He's probably got this gaping scar across his neck and maybe his head tilted a little bit off the side because that's how you would slay a lamb for sacrifice back in that day. Right, so just, again, catch this twist. John turning, expecting to see the power and the strength of a lion. Instead, he sees the vulnerability and through this slainness, the weakness of a lamb. We'll come back to that. The lamb walks up to the throne, grabs the scroll, and as soon as he grabs the scroll, it's like the whole place goes nuts. <laughs> right? Now all of a sudden the you know the four living creatures and the, the twenty-four elders who are carrying the these bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Right? It's like these 24 elders, their job is, as the representatives of God's people, their job is to carry before the throne day and night right, the prayers and the pleas and the cries and the longings of God's people through the ages. Right? So these elders who are carrying these bowls, they all just fall flat on their face and they sing out a new song now. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and made them a kingdom of priests service. Uh, I mean, again, so many mother images here. Harken back to the Old Testament. You got the image of, you know, the Exodus. When God comes to deliver his people from Egypt, the last plague, God says, I'm coming for the firstborn of every family in Egypt. You've come for my firstborn, I'm coming for your firstborn. So he tells his people, look, when my angel of death comes through, make sure you take a lamb, you kill the lamb, and you put some of the blood over the doorplace so that my angel will pass over you in the night. And in a way, in the same way, now when God's spirit comes to judge all the earth and to remove from his creation all that is not right. And though we should be part of that purge ourselves because now we have the blood of this lamb. Boy, that spirit of vengeance and justice just passes over. Where it says, you know, by your blood you have ransomed. I don't think back in the ancient day, it was a big business that you would go kidnap somebody and then you would send ransom, ransom letters to their families, drop a couple million dollars in an unmarked bag in this place and you get your loved one back. I don't know if that's so much the picture, but in the ancient world, you did have prisoners of war, right, who would be taken captive when one country conquers another and uh, as a result, maybe it would become slaves and you could purchase the freedom of those captives. And probably that's more the image here that by the blood of this lamb, God has somehow now ransomed captives and slaves of the enemy and brought them into new life and into his kingdom. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation, by the way. Uh, one more picture, uh, a couple more pictures for you here. <laughs> I'm going to be showing you pictures here, right? Do we have uh, some pictures? Oh, no, maybe not. That's okay. Do we have it? Oh, yeah. Okay, this is uh, all on the River Jordan. 
just below, just at the end of the Sea of Galilee. And this was one of the most exciting days was when we had a day where we were going to have some baptisms. There was a large contingent of people from a church in West Virginia that were there, and some of them wanted to be baptized uh, in the River Jordan. This is the baptism, baptismal site there. They would walk out you know, back there, and you'd get baptized back there. And so that was fun. That was exciting. But one of the coolest things for me was actually right behind this. If you want to go to the next picture. Um, all along the wall, pretty much when you, from wherever you, you got off the bus and started to walk into the site, to all along behind, this is the back wall of looking out to the, the River of Jordan. You have this wall that are full of all these plaques. I think, yeah, there you go. And it's... Uh, quotes from, I think, Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. And they're in all different languages. And these plaques were sent or contributed to by churches or for Christ, from Christians all around the world. And literally, as you're walking in, you're seeing in every different tongue and, and language, you know, this uh, Matthew chapter 3 and talking about the baptism of Jesus. And it's just a wonderful picture because, because as these people were being baptized into the life of Christ, man, you couldn't get a more dramatic representation. You're also being baptized into this worldwide global family of Christ as well too. And that's something that's radically unique, right, to the Christian faith. You think of other world religions, there is a broadness to it, but usually you can associate them with certain ethnicities or regions of regions of the planet, you know, or whatever, certain people groups or whatever, but not so with Christianity. There's something about the blood of this lamb and what he has done that it has secured people from every tongue, tribe, and nation on the planet. And he's ransomed them. He's made them a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, meaning that we are called to be a kingdom that live in service, uh, and, and as a representation uh, of this of this great God, All right? And so anyway, so they, these twenty four elders and the uh, created beings they they sing out this new song, and then after they sing out this new song, uh, we hear around the throne uh, and the living creatures. The voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so again, the simple question, right? This great scene, chorus of praise and celebration. Where are you in relation to that, right? Are you able to enter into the scene? Are you able to join into the choir? Are you able to wholeheartedly sing to him who is at the center, worthy and honor and blessing and glory to you? Are you able to, you know, orient your life around the one on the throne and the lamb who is at the center, are you able to break out of our, you know, your tendency to just drift off and self-absorb, self-orbits, right? Ever and right, and come back to this God and to the Lamb as the center. And are you able to root your hopes and your and your your confidence and your faith in the ones who are at the center? Is your greatest treasure, is your greatest love, what you worship above all else, that which lies at the center? Okay, and again, the edge to the question, as we bring this, start to bring this to a close, I said there was an edge to this. 
before you just say, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, there's this one other little nuance here. When you go back to that, that business of the lamb standing as though slain, and get a little technical here. In the Greek, that, those words, standing as though slain, they're, they're two passive participles. One's active and one's passive. I'm laughing here because I did terrible in grammar, and Amy will tell you I have all sorts of grammatical deficiencies, which I'm very proud of, by the way. So I'm not going to get too deep in that. But what limited understanding I have is that I don't know if we have an exact English equivalent to these tenses that sometimes show up in the Greek. And basically what it means is it is a condition of, a permanent condition of being or an ongoing condition of being based on a past event. In other words, it means this. Jesus is always and forever the Lamb. Or if you go throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, you're never going to see Jesus referred to as a lion again. He's always going to be referred to as the Lamb. You get into chapter 21, 22, the closing chapters of the book, when this royal throne comes down from heaven onto the earth and, and we're plunged into new creation. At the center is God and the Lamb. Symbolic, of course. I don't think you're always going to, like God, the visual picture of Jesus is always going to be the lamb. But the point is that throughout the book, in this very symbolic picture, God, Jesus is always the lamb. Or more specifically, Jesus always acts in the manner of the lamb who was slain. The slain lamb with the gaping wound in his neck. Okay, which on the one hand is really good news for us. It's a reminder that always and forever, the same love that drove Jesus to the cross for us as sinners is going to be forever applied to us. In spite of our weakness, in spite of our failures and our ongoing states of unsanctification, yet Christ will always be to us the loving lamb. Okay, but put yourself in the mindset of the ancient church, right? That is suffering hardship and persecution under the heavy hand of Rome. And they want this scroll to be unrolled and the seals to be unlocked. And yeah, maybe they're all excited. Yeah, I hear there's a lion coming that's going to take this scroll and going to unroll it and execute the purposes of God. But then you turn and you see this weak little lamb in all of his weakness and all of his deathliness and all of his slainness. And he said, well, wait a minute. You want me to entrust my life to this cute, weak little lamb. Or you want me to continue to hold on and to press deeper and to remain faithful to my testimony, come what may, under the assurance that this little lamb is going to deal with the problem of Rome. And this little lamb is going to deal with the problem of Satan and God's enemies and they're going to usher in this new creation. Or maybe even to push that a little bit further. Not only is Jesus throughout the book acting lamb-like, but this is also what it means to be part of his kingdom, to be his royal priesthood, to be his representatives, is that the church too is called to live lamb-like. You're going to find numerous places throughout the book. You're going to hear about the church that overcomes and conquers by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony in word and deed to the Lamb. They overcome by following the Lamb. 
There's going to be places in Revelation where you're going to see uh, the kingdom advance in powerful ways. You're going to see the conversion, the repentance and conversion of rebel enemies of God through the church, not being lion-like, but being lamb-like. Suffering sacrificially, even dying. And we're going to talk a lot, a lot more about that the more we go into the book. But we'll just say here that certainly that's counterintuitive. We tend to think you want something done. You want to see kingdoms advance. You've got to be like a lion. You've got to be bold. You've got to be ferocious. You've got to be powerful. You've got to grab power by the neck and just run with it. But this scroll is unrolled. And these seals are broken. And God's intentions for his creation, the conversion of the nations, the healing of his people comes through one who acts like a lamb. One more picture. Do we have it? Maybe? Yeah, here we go. Uh, this actually wasn't my picture. Um, I had to pull it off the internet. We drove past this in Bethlehem. It was painted on the side of a uh, auto shop. We were driving in the bus. We were going past, and I caught it real quick. And it caught my eye because I actually know the, the some of you might know, uh, this is a, a piece of art, if you want to call it that. Well, I don't know, by one of the, the world's greatest or, or most famous uh, graffiti artist, Banksy. He's a, he's a British graffiti artist. It's called Love is in the Air. And... Uh, <laughs> It's a poignant picture in, in Bethlehem, right? This guy has grabbed this you know, flower bouquet and throw it in like a riot, right? Because Bethlehem uh, sits on the border of the West Bank, which is technically, well, it is Palestinian territory, right? And, but it's also right in the border of, of Jerusalem, the city of Israel. And so in uh, Bethlehem has this, uh, it's got a pretty sizable wall around most parts of Bethlehem. You have to pass through this wall. Uh, to get from the West Bank to Jerusalem. And part of the reason the wall is there is to keep uh, unapproved Palestinians from going into Jerusalem and keeping unapproved Israel, Israelis from going into the West Bank. And so when our bus went through the checkpoint, checkpoint, I don't know, whatever it was, we had to stop, and when the guards had to come onto the bus, and we were all supposed to wave our passports so that we could see, well, okay, we have permission to go through. In other words, this is a... Bethlehem happens to be one of those places around this wall where sometimes little skirmishes will break out, you know, whenever there's tension uh, between Israeli and Palestinian folks uh, and things. And I was talking to some people. Oh, never mind. We're running out of time. I won't, I'll share that conversation with you some other time. But the point is, uh, it's a, it's, it, it can sometimes be a tense town. And so it's a poignant picture to see this picture of a guy in, you know, in, in, in riot, whatever, pose, but casting a, a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> right? Because... You know, you can catch this, uh, you know, Banksy's uh, right pacifist leanings, whatever, if you will. But it just looks kind of silly. Oh, like that's going to accomplish anything, throwing a bouquet of flowers. The other reason it's poignant, though, is because it's in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is the place where a bunch of angels came to a group of shepherds out in the field one day and said, Hey, fear not, we bring you glad tidings of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, in Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born this day the Messiah King. Oh, by the way, he's a helpless little baby born to some poor peasant family. And you'll find him in a feeding trough in the animal quarters of another peasant, likely peasant house in the town of Nazareth. And this baby's soon going to have to flee to Egypt with his family because, you know, the powers that be want him dead. 
This baby's going to grow up and he's going to know all too well what it means to live in poverty and rejection and abuse and betrayal. And this baby's going to grow up and one day set his sights towards Jerusalem and head into Jerusalem knowing that once he gets there, the high priests and the rulers that be are just waiting for him to put him to death. And yet he's going there because of his love for his people and for his obedience to the Father. And it's going to be that death, that sacrificial laying down of his life and his subsequent victory three days later, which is going to explode onto the scene, the greatest kingdom advancement the world's ever known. And begin this great project of bringing in people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to this great renewal operation. And so even though it's counterintuitive to see a lamb instead of a lion, to think that's going to accomplish anything, we should know from the biblical stories exactly how it happens. And it's because this lamb was slain that now all the hosts of heaven and the earth and under the earth Come together and say, worthy, worthy, worthy are you to receive honor and glory and power and might. Last thing, I promise. There's so much in this. But then the the elders all fall down and the the four living creatures, they say, amen. Uh, It was Justin Martyr in his early apology for the Christian church. I think it was like... Just a few years after Revelation was written. He says, you know, the church, when they gather for worship and after their prayers, they always end with a hearty amen. And the word that he uses there is really a sort of a, it means like a raucous yes. Or a celebratory note of applause. And you know, like some of the subsequent generations, uh, that word amen, it's actually a Hebrew word. And some subsequent generations wanted to replace that word with maybe a Greek word or a Latin word. But they couldn't quite find the word that would express the same thing. Right? We had words that, may, that, that conveyed the notion of that which is not false. Like, no, that doesn't, that doesn't convey it. Or we have a word that means uh, would that it would be so. Like, no, that's not what what amen means either. And so they just said, well, we're just going to keep saying amen. And we still, to this day, have not found a better word, right? It's this word that declares boldly, yes, that all the promises and all the words of God have their yes and amen in this Jesus Christ. That because this lamb has conquered and triumphed, we can say with full certainty, yes and amen, that one day all of God's people will be fully healed and restored and live in resurrection life to the full. Because this lamb has triumphed, we can say yes and amen, knowing that one day God will come and judge and make all things right. Because this lamb has conquered, we can say yes and amen, that one day this whole world will be plunged into new creation. And one day, because of this lamb, we will gather with all the saints and with all the host of heaven and every living creature. And we will join this wonderful celebration saying, worthy, worthy, worthy are you because you were slain because of what you have done. Amen. And it's that amen. Enjoying that course, I think that will enable us to live more lamb-like. Right? When we exalt him at the center and we see all that he is and all that he's done, yeah, that's what enables us to live that counterintuitive lamb-like life as good priests of his kingdom. And so we pray that God would lead us in that yes and in that amen, so that in all things he might receive honor and glory and his kingdom would advance in and through us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen. amen.